afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Rookie Rock. That's right, it's a look at the weekly developments in the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science. In addition, we'll be joined by Andre Meloda and Susan Selly at the Robotics Convention at Fort Mason Center. Also, we'll find out what's in your banana. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up here on Berkeley Rocks. Back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Franklin. And I guess it makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Not too bad. Not too bad. I guess uh, the year is finally winding down. We're one step away from the best year, I guess, of our lives. 2004. 2004. Uh, wow. Is there any kind of significance to that number? 2004. Sounds very even to me. Yes, it is. <laughs> Divided <laughs> pal- by two. Not a palindrome or a... No, it's not a prime. No. We can wait till 2005, I guess. <laughs> Some interesting news from this year, before next year comes along, they found some interesting stuff around Uranus. So the Hubble telescope has found two more moons circling around Uranus, bringing it up to 24 now. Wow. Are they sure these things are moons or not just uh, little asteroids that haven't been caught? Depends how you define it. It turns out these uh, moons are about 10 miles in diameter, mm. say the size of San Francisco. So, you know, if you consider that a moon, yeah. I mean, it does have a, you know, defined orbit, so presumably you could call it a moon. Yeah, there's the criteria for a moon, but kind of small, and it's, I guess, easy to see how they missed it. Yeah, this was work carried out by uh, some researchers at Stanford and NASA Ames. What they're trying to prove here is that the optics that we have now is so much more sophisticated that we could not have done this 20 years ago. And even when the Voyager passed by Uranus, they were not able to detect them. So we've, we've really come a long ways. So have they named these new moons? They haven't, but tentatively they're going to be called S2003UI and S2003U2. <laughs> you know, with snappy names like that, <laughs> it's easy to see how they'll be remembered. So what are you going to name your first kid? Coca-Cola or... Uh... Uh, ATP. ATP. ATP would be good. So I guess if anyone wants to know more, they can go to the website of the Hubble Telescope or uh, the homepage at Stanford. Okay, venturing out a little bit further from Uranus into the deeper land. Beyond the uh, mechanical universe, huh? Well, at least beyond our galaxy. Uh, researchers have apparently discovered a new galaxy that looms a lot closer than any known galaxy before to our own Milky Way. Are you talking about the Andromeda, or...? No, this is apparently the Canis Major galaxy. Canis Major? Yes. And we just found out it's closer than any other galaxy. It apparently is. It's apparently a galaxy that the uh, Milky Way is sucking into our own galaxy. Oh, man, we suck, huh? <laughs> so this is the interesting thing about it. The Milky Way uh, and other giant galaxies have a number of dwarf stars and other types of stars that they've apparently sucked from smaller galaxies. Uh-huh. That have gotten too close to them. Oh. And so apparently this is just a way for big galaxies to even grow even larger. Right. And the small galaxies just become dissipated in this process. Oh, I see. So this is quite interesting. This is a study that was carried out by a graduate student, Nicholas Martin, and astronomer Rodrigo Ibada of the Strasbourg Observatory in France. Mm-hmm. Found these uh, lines of dwarf stars, and it's basically all these stars that are being sucked into the Milky Way from this uh, small Canis Major galaxy. Man, this would be like big news, and all we hear about is like some war in Iraq or something, huh? <laughs> It's only, I guess, until these galaxies start fringing on our oil rights that we really have to be worried about it. 
It's all about oil. Huh? It's all about the oil. <laughs> but I guess that's what we're here for. Yeah. To inform the public about the closest galaxy. And uh, it's also what the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society is for, because that's where it was published. Cool. So what happens when you get excited, Charles? Do you uh, emit or inject? I've actually been able to control my emissions regularly. So uh, it's all the Kegel sizer exercise. Okay, so, so you're not a virus then. And you know viruses uh, have to use a lot of pressure to uh, inject the material. Oh, that's right. Some scientists at UCLA have actually figured out what pressure uh, these viruses inject their DNA into other bacteria or organisms. Oh, really? And it turns out it's about 40 atmospheres. 40 atmospheres of pressure? Yeah. How do little guys like that generate so much pressure? You know, you got to wonder, huh? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they're just really anxious. Uh, that's the way they survive, you know? Uh, spraying their DNA yeah. by injecting it. What they've done is they, they got a model virus and bacteria, and they uh, varied the concentration of the solution around that until it would not inject anymore. And based on these observations, they came up with this value of 40 atmospheres. Okay. But uh, apparently that's how much it needs in order to push that DNA into the host. Into the cell wall, yeah. Right. So uh, this actually came from our very favorite journal. PNAS. PNAS. <laughs> Volume 100. Well, here's our last uh, update for the year, and we're going to end it with a bang. With a bang? Oh, man, that's the, that's the best way to go. <laughs> it's always the best way to go, and hopefully uh, everyone will find this one quite touching in a very gaseous kind of way. Gaseous? I, I sense something here. Well, so how do you like to try and keep in touch with your fellow citizens? Email, IM, ever, cell phones. <laughs> have you ever considered farting? Farting? Well, I, I don't know. If I became, like, America's secret weapon, maybe I would. <laughs> you are America's secret weapon. <laughs> don't anyone tell you otherwise. But it turns out, actually, that certain types of fish actually emit gases from their posteriors and use it as a means of communication with their brethren. From the posteriors? Basically, their ass. <laughs> so it turns out that a study has found that fish can make noise by squeezing air bubbles out of their backsides, and researchers basically believe that this could be used for communication. So they would have to be intentionally squeezing it out, right? Indeed. Which means they probably have a build up this gas constantly. Right. And, in fact, they tested this. A group uh, led by Ben Wilson of Simon Fraser University in British Columbia set up tanks in his lab with these fishes, and he prevented them from actually accessing air on the top of the tank mm -hmm. and showed that these fish could no longer emit these signals to other fish. Oh. And basically, he showed also that these herring made noises just when darkness was falling. Right. So allow the fish to gather together and move off mm -hmm. at that point. Quite interesting, because they termed these emissions fast repetitive ticks, or <laughs> FRTs. FRTs. FRTs, and these FRTs, which they call ferts. <laughs> and, cute. Yes. And the fish basically stopped furting whenever uh, darkness uh, came around. Wow, darkness and furting. So this is quite interesting, and uh, another group led by Magnus Wahlberg at Arenas University showed similar things with uh, these emissions from these types of herring. So if anyone wants to know more about these exotic fishes or, or regular yeah, fishes? Regular fishes that are emitting sounds, they can find it in the recent edition of Biology Letters. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Coming up next, Robert Singleton would join us with an interview with Joanna Kita from the UC Berkeley Extension talking about nutrition and weight loss. So stay tuned.
Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, the holiday season is often a time for celebrating in excess. For some, this may mean a few unwanted holiday pounds being amply tacked on. However, dieting to remove these excess pounds can potentially be a problem for long-term weight loss. Well, on Berkeley Grocks today, Joanne Akita from the University of California at Berkeley Extension chats with our very own Robert Singleton about the dangers of such dieting and provides some useful tips for avoiding such pitfalls. Here now is Robert Singleton with his report. The general public's perception of extremely obese women is that they've become that way because of excessive self-indulgence and a lack of weight management willpower. But a recent University of California at Berkeley study indicates that is not necessarily true. The large women that I have encountered have, in fact, made numerous attempts to lose weight, are physically active, and are concerned about their health. UC Extension Nutrition Education Specialist Joanna Ketta says in a first-ever year-long survey of some 150 women where researchers examined the diet practices of women weighing in excess of 200 to 700 pounds, for example, at least three factors emerge that tell a different story. The largest women had started dieting before they were 14 years of age. And this appears to be a risk factor for becoming really large. The other thing we found was the women who were extremely large had dieted more often. Therein, she says, is where the problem lies in what healthcare scientists describe as the cumulative effects of yo-yo dieting. That is, these women will lose significant amounts of weight, up to maybe even 100 pounds. They will maintain that weight loss for anywhere from a year to three years. And then they will gradually regain that weight and regain additional weight so that they end up at a higher weight than they started out. And it is this repetitive dieting cycle, she says, that leads to periods of regaining lost weight plus new weight. So what has happened with these women who, let's say, weigh 400, 500, 600 pounds, is they have basically weight cycled up to really large weights. While it is difficult to predict who is most likely to become a victim of extreme obesity, well, those who believe they may be heading in that direction suggest they focus less on weight loss and instead concentrate on weight stability and physical activity. Because if they, in fact, restrict their calories again, lose weight and regain, they may end up being one of these 500-pound women. If weight goes down, fine. If it doesn't, that's okay, too. It's just really important not to keep gaining. But early teenage dieting, combined with repeated episodes of weight loss and weight regain, have probably led to their extreme obesity situations. And it is at this point, according to UC Extension Nutrition Education Specialist Joanna Ketta, that some women are willing to resort to weight loss surgery. We know that uh, some of the people who have it don't end up losing weight permanently. According to Ketta, Weight loss surgery is not necessarily a so-called magic bullet. Having the surgery is very serious. The maximum amount of food you can eat at a time is about three tablespoons. Uh, your stomach is reduced in size to a very small pouch. And along with that, she adds, there's repeated problems with food digestion and malnutrition. Furthermore, 
There have been no follow-up scientific studies to verify and evaluate the long-term effects of weight loss surgery at, for instance, 20 to 30 years later. Some people do fine. Other people literally have to have the surgery reversed because of all of the complications. I would say that if anyone's considering the surgery, they really need to investigate both the benefits and the risks. People need to really consider whether they want to shut off part of a vital body organ because that's basically what's happening there. Still, says Akeda, the evidence does strongly suggest that both extremely large women and men, too, suffer physically and emotionally the effects of public prejudice and abuse because of their size. These very large women will say, how can I be invisible? I weigh 500 pounds, yet people will not look at me. And in talking and interacting with the members of NAFA, I find they are just like me and you. They are real people with positive contributions to make to society. There is absolutely no reason to stigmatize them and treat them as if they have done something wrong or immoral. For the University of California, I'm Robert Singleton. Thanks a lot, Robert, for that very fascinating report. You were just listening to Robert Singleton talking with Joanne Akita from the UC Berkeley Extension about nutrition and weight loss. Robert Singleton is leaving UC Radio News for other things, and we wish him the best of luck in his future endeavors. You're listening to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Coming up next, we'll be checking in with Andre Maloda and Susan Selly at the Robotics Convention at Fort Mason Center. They'll be chatting with some robotics engineers, so stay tuned. to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, now we're checking in with Andre Maloda and Susan Selly at the Robotics Convention at Fort Mason Center. They're going to be chatting with some interesting robotics engineers. Take it away, guys. Hi, so if you wouldn't mind just telling me your name and why you're here today. I'm Andrew Miller. Um, I'm here to compete in the Mini Sumo Robot Competition. Okay, great. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the robot and where it came from, like, did you build it or did you buy it? Um, well, it's completely custom. We bought pretty much every part just from robot stores. I'm not sure if we ordered anything. Um, it's mainly from stuff we can just find, normal parts that you just find in a normal robot store. And so did you put it together then? Yeah, my dad had helped me put it together. I did some of the soldering and stuff. But uh, I'm mainly the person who runs it. 
Great. And so what do you know about this competition? So you're going to go into a room, and then what will happen? Well, each person starts on two lines. Um, normally they're white. In a ring, it's black with a white circle. You start on the, the white lines any way you want, uh, sideways, uh, forward, anyway, and you try and push the other person off. It's completely autonomous, no controls. You uh, try and push them out of the ring, and the normal strategy is you uh, people will put uh, sensors on to find the other robot, and it has to be pushed out of the white ring. And some, most of the time, there's sensors to detect the white ring. Okay, great. Well, maybe we'll find you afterward and uh, see how you feel and how you've done. So uh, what is your name, and uh, why are you uh, here today? And uh, My name is Kevin Farrell, and I'm here with my son, Paul, who's 12, and his cousin, Ian, who's also 12, and his good friend, Christopher, who is also 12, three of them. <laughs> And you seem to be working on a, um, a robot of yes. some kind. It's called a mini sumo robot, um, and it's a custom design as opposed to a kit. Okay. And um, I take it this one's a kit robot sitting next to it? Right. The one next to it is a Mark III, uh, which is a kit available from um, a place up in Oregon. Um, it's a good kit. So I take it you have the uh, custom robot or the, the kit robot to compete against your custom robot in your, um, when you're testing it. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, in fact, we've got four different robots. Uh, we started building them about three years ago, and my son was nine, I suppose. And, uh, you know, it was a way for him to learn a lot of things about electronics and electricity and computer programming and uh, you know, and he's kind of science-oriented and math-oriented, so, you know, we've stuck with it for three years. So what do these things run off? Uh, pick microprocessors generally, or uh, what do you have? Uh, yeah, they're, they're either uh, pick or uh, I forget what they um, you know, so that's how we're kind of um, beating the rules, as it were. I take it it has some sensors to find your opponent and some sensors to find the, I guess there's a big ring around the outside which uh, lets you know when you're running over the edge or something like that. Right. The sumo ring, the mini sumo ring is black and it's about a meter in diameter and around the edge is a white line. And when the robots reach the edge, and by the way, these robots are all autonomous. They're not radio controlled. So you have to program them and then they just do it by themselves but when they see the white line they back up and get back in the middle of the of the circle right okay well good luck in the competition anything else you'd like to add no i just encourage everybody to investigate it thank you thank you your name and why you're here today uh, my name is terry grant i'm an engineer with nasa ames research center and I'm here uh, because I'm involved with the Robotics Education Project, which we have a, all our, bro our uh, uh, set up here to show. Um, we're here to, to encourage people, uh, students, especially middle and high school students, to get involved with robotics competitions as a way to learn more about science and technology. 
and we find that there's a real need for that uh, locally. Uh, that that a uh, a lot of a lot of students these days are are just completely unaware of the technology that they're interacting with every day. NASA's worried about finding future engineers and scientists to do uh, uh, space uh, work, and we we're so we're we have part of our charter to encourage interest in science and technology. And uh, as a practical matter, we see that this is a, the kind of thing that will get students motivated in, uh, in school, in the high school uh, age students, for instance. A large number of them are dropping out these days because they're not challenged or they, for various reasons, they don't match what, what the school has to offer. Well, this kind of robotics competition is a different environment than they're used to in school. And some of them that are turned off on school get turned on by the challenge of, of building a robot and competing. Great. I've heard that. Sounds like a great pro program. Um, and what kinds of uh, robots have you brought today? Well, we brought a, a little of everything. We've got a line-following robot. We've got a line-running robot. We've got one that will follow the edge of a surface as it goes around. And we've got one that is just designed to demonstrate that you can direct robot motion just by measuring the wheel rotations. I had a student build this about two years ago uh, where I, we wanted to say uh, just using the standard Mindstorm kit, which LEGO sells, how accurately could you get the robot to turn and to go straight and things like that. So he built this one robot, and we have a little demonstration that shows that you can get fairly accurate if you're careful with how you put it down and the way you build the motors and the interfaces and stuff. Great. Do you have any uh, questions, Andre? No? All right. Thank you very much. Here. Uh, my name is Oren Oske. I'm with Onavi Microavionics, and what we're doing here is we're showing inertial navigation technology to the hobbyist industry. What does that consist of exactly? Uh, inertial navigation, basically, or inertial sensors are used to determine orientation in space of any body that is either attached to the ground like a car or flying in the air like a 747 or a space shuttle. So people might use this to build a uh, autonomous remote-controlled aircraft, for instance? Absolutely. That's one of our mandates. We actually build or design here an uh, autonomous flight controller engine for aircraft uh, it has a pitot static sensor system on board, a GPS, and we're currently developing a vehicle for returning from uh, balloons from 120,000 feet. Wow, that's quite impressive. What does a system like that cost these days, and what is it likely to come down to? It's likely to come down to a well under $1,000. So you can, come, you can fly and come back or go to waypoints anywhere on Earth uh, up to probably 256 waypoints. Wow, so it's like anybody can have their own cruise missile, I guess. Anyone can have their own flying vehicle and hopefully not a cruise missile. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Is there anything else you'd like to add? That's about it. Thank you. Um, if you wouldn't mind telling me your name sure. and why you're here. Okay, my name is Roger Gilbertson. I'm from robotstore.com and we sell robots. We've done that, we've been on the web for nine years or so now, and before that we sold the old fashioned way through the mail. Um, and our mission is to get cool robots into people's hands so they can make even cooler things out of them. 
um, how to take parts and turn them into new things. Uh, if you've got an old radio control car how, and a computer, how do you match them up and make something new happen out of them? Cool. And um, what have you brought with you today? Well, today we brought one main thing along. This is the Octobot Survivor. It's a little robot. It's about the size of a, what, a, a large bowl of rice. And it's got sensors on it, and it has a charging station that you plug into the wall, sits on the floor separately from it. When this robot's batteries get low, it goes back to the charging station and plugs itself in to charge up again. There are not a lot of robots that do that. The, the robot mowers, the robot vacuum cleaners, you have to go over to them and plug them in when you're done. I mean, where's the convenience in that? The reason that they don't do it is because it's a really hard problem. The real world presents so many obstacles that make it hard for a robot to do something as simple as take care of its own needs that we thought we needed a platform for our customers to begin experimenting with that and coming up with new solutions. Uh, how does it find its charger again? It's using an infrared beacon. Uh, the, the charging station is sending out a flashing signal like your TV remote. If you just sit there and push the play button, this robot looks for that beacon when its batteries get low, and it tracks in on it. It's got two sensors on the front, just like eyes, left and right, and it can tell if that signal is more to the left or more to the right, and it keeps driving towards it until it detects the voltage coming in on its contacts. Pretty simple to explain, but very hard to implement all the details. Does it uh, then have to be within line of sight to find its charger, or is it clever enough to get around things and find its way back from another room or something like that? Absolutely. Well, the Octobot's designed to live in an environment like you have a, if you have a pet rabbit or something, it needs a safe environment, but it can have a lot of obstacles. And it could be in a position where it does not have line of sight to the charging station. So it'll begin wandering, but it'll begin wandering looking for that beacon. And as soon as it finds it, it'll avoid obstacles left or right until it can track in and get there. And of course, it's a very sad robot that's dying in the corner because it can't get out of an obstacle and get back there. And so it starts making sounds, and if you're in the other room, you hear it, and you can come in and give it a help. And then um, a few moments ago, you were talking about your daughters. I was asking about women, young women, getting involved in this. Absolutely. Well, I mean, we all know now, fortunately, that young women don't get the assistance they need early on. MIT, a few years ago, took it on to have extra attention for young women their robotics program specifically, and they developed so many world-class roboticists who came out of this doing new things. Women tend to look at problems differently than men. Go figure, right? Um, the men would be studying, how can I have my robot kill that robot? The women are studying, well, this robot got stuck in a crater. How can the other robots help it out? And the mission continues. They did some amazing work, and they continue to in industry. So I've got two daughters. I'm very interested in having them find exciting things in these projects and get great inspiration out of it because it's our technology and we're going to do whatever we want to do with it. The people who know about the technology are going to be able to do it. The rest of the, anyone who's not involved in it has to sit by the sidelines and just watch or complain. So we'd better be the ones to take it on and decide what to do with this technology. Also, this, this year's International Science Fair Festival that was held just a few months ago, three young women won the top three places for the first time in the history of the science fair competition. So I think that shows that there's some good attention being paid to what young kids of all, but specifically what young women can be doing to make better stuff. Are your daughters here today? They are not. They're on vacation with their grandmother. Normally I make them work here at these things with me too, but they're having fun. But we are going to go to the science fair next year, and I want to take them so they can get inspired and see what that's about. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, guys. Uh, looks like we're running a little bit out of time. Uh, you were just listening to Andre Melota and Susan Selly at the robotics convention at Fort Mason Center. And now it's time for the answer to last week's question of the week with the governor, Arnie. 
Ja, und du hast den Kabinett, aber es ist nichts Kreischen, also weg. Oh, ich sag's nicht, da kreisen, das ist das Kreisen, das ist das Kreisen, das ist das Kreisen, ja. So, Johann, so wie Leute, da kommen nur ein Dick, Pam, da haben wir ein Kreisen, das, ja. So, hier sehen Sie Bananas, ja. Und sie lassen Kreisen, jetzt wird der Kreisen, das Ding, oder Bananas, ist, ist das kein Quadratium. Und sagst du, ja, so, hast du die Kreisen, also weg, jetzt Quadratium. Okay, thank you, Governor Schwarzenegger. And now here's, uh, Tokyo Kid with, the last question of the week for this year. Uh, what is a leap year? If you know the answer or just think you know the answer, email us at grogs at hotmail.com. You want to win anything, but uh, you know how to leap into 2004. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkey Grogs. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkey Grogs, email us at grogs at hotmail.com. For Berkey Grogs, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Have a very happy new year and stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie. Nothing you can do that can't be done. Nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Nothing you can say but you can learn how to play the game. It's easy. Nothing you can do, but you can learn how to be you in time. It's easy.